You're listening to the CLE Foodcast with Lisa Sands, the place for delicious conversation on local food and the people who grow, cook, and share it. Here's Lisa. Thanks so much, Bill. Well, before we get started, I want to tell you that this episode is a little bit longer than usual, but I really want you to listen to it. Yes, it is an hour, but trust me when I tell you it's worth your time. I talked to chef, entrepreneur, and activist Ismail Samad. He grew up in East Cleveland, eventually finding his way to Vermont, Martha's Vineyard, and Boston before coming home to dedicate himself to reimagining East Cleveland. And he thinks about a lot more than food, or I should say all of the things that food represents, sustenance, nutrition, entrepreneurship, hospitality, and a reason to gather and get to know one another. Speaking of gathering, let's talk for a moment about Ohio Wine Month, which is now June. As an Ohio Wines Ambassador, I love talking to you about Ohio's wines and vines. I've been getting out and exploring different wineries across the state. In fact, I just visited Quarry Hill Vineyard in Berlin Heights, Ohio. It's not too far from some of Ohio's best beach towns, and it's an easy drive, about 30 minutes west of Cleveland. They make a red blend there called Pinnacle that is just delicious, especially when you enjoy it overlooking their beautiful vineyards and fruit orchards. Get to know Ohio Wines at findohiowines.com, where you can get all of the things you need to plan a visit to one of Ohio's wineries. And there are more than 300 of them, and one is probably near you. That's findohiowines.com. Ismail Samad hopes to reimagine East Cleveland. The restaurant scene, the food insecurity and food deserts, and even the way people gather in public spaces. His nonprofit is called Loiter. And yeah, there is some symbolism there. I'll let him explain it. Trust me, this guy could work anywhere, but he came back home to make his community better. And you know what? I think he's going to do it. Let's meet Ismail. Ismail, thank you so much for being on the CLE Foodcast. How are you doing today? Uh, man, I'm good. Got my first taste of oat milk in the coffee. Um, <laughs> What'd so, you think? I'm surprised to n- hear that. No, n- yeah, kind of stay away from that. I, I, I like whole milk, you know? Oh, so, I do too. I'm, I'm, I'm a whole milk dude. So unfortunately you were out of, uh, of cream and, and milk, so I had to go with it. But it's not bad. It's fine. It's not it's bad. We were recording uh, today from Limelight Coworking in Tremont and Michelle was kind enough to get us some coffee and some drinks. I love whole milk too. I grew up on it and I still prefer it. There's a brand in Ohio called Hartzler's. Mm. Are you aware of it? No, Hartzler's no. Dairy, man. Okay. I'm telling you. So like the chocolate milk is basically a chocolate milkshake. They make strawberry milk, orange milk. Your girls would love it. Nice, so um, nice. if you need to bribe them someday, I'm telling you, Hartzler's whole milk is amazing. It's got the cream on top. Oh, that's exactly. how good yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, perfect, perfect. Well, we are digressing just a little bit. You're a chef, an entrepreneur, an activist, and and those are all very big roles on their own, and they take a lot of time and effort. <laughs> But over the past few years, you've combined those things to bring awareness, support, and action to marginalized communities, as, and as you say, the habitually excluded. And that's a term that I had not heard of before I you know, did some research on you. Uh, we're going to unpack all of that today, and we're going to talk about all of the things that you're doing with food sort of being the umbrella, but... Your journey started in East Cleveland, and I want you to tell me a little bit about your upbringing here and, and then how your culinary journey began. 
Yeah, we'll try and unpack all that in this, in this evening, but... Do we have... I, we have 45 minutes. <laughs> Can we do that? I think so. We'll do our best. I, yeah, originally from East Cleveland, one of seven kids, uh, five of us um, are boys and two are girls. So it was, uh, you know, it was definitely a very rough and tumble household. Where are you in the birth order? I'm second youngest. I uh, was homeschooled from the eighth grade on out. So I went to, I went from elementary up to seventh grade. And at that point, my parents were like, ah, you know what, we're not going to continue to send our kids into the East Cleveland Public Schools. So we made the decision, well, they made the decision to the chagrin of me and my brothers and sisters to yank us out of school and kind of like, you know, homeschool. And so from that, I kind of went into this space of like, all right, what do I want to do? How do I figure stuff out? A lot of how I am right now is based upon that kind of experience at a young age to be like, you know what, figure it out, learn. Mm-hmm. adjust right uh and so kind of choosing my own chart charting my own course from 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 a very young age was uh very rewarding for me to be able to look at opportunities uh in every space that I'm in as uh what 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 thing in this space needs to be scratched or kind of like examined or can, I can jump into and so that's kind of how I look at at stuff. So, you know, I, I did go to Tri-C and then I transferred over, did a, a small stint of transferred over to Case Western Reserve for to do a tributary habitat research uh, using GIS databases. So it was this very interesting moment. I was like, I thought I was going to be, you know, this kind of like environmental biologist dude who is going to like, only because I used to watch like Discovery Channel oh, and that yeah. kind of stuff. And then I did research uh, actually with, 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 uh, Man, like with, oh, Dr. Kuntz, he was my advisor through this program at Tri-C called Bridges to Success. Mm -hmm. And then I was like in waiters, getting dirty, like out there. And all the while I'm doing this, I was working at restaurants. Ah, there it is. Right, so I was working at restaurants (laughs) while I'm doing this stuff. I kind of was like, "Ah, I don't know what I want to do. I was staying busy. And then I said, all right. I had a had a conversation with Dr. Coons at the time, and, and he was like, "Well, you know what? In order to go far in this, you're going to have to like, you know, get your master's, PhD." I said, "Well, that's, I'm not doing that. I'm just knew that I wasn't. That's not wasn't cut out for me." I at that point, I opened my first cafe at 23 called Crust and Crumbs, and this was in the Cleveland Twist Drill Building on 47th and Lakeside. Oh, that was here. Yeah, I that did was read here. that. I didn't realize yeah. that was right here in Cleveland. Yeah, yeah, that was in Cleveland, and that is. Um, and it actually was owned. It was owned by Greystone Properties. I don't know if it still is. And uh, Beth, I can. T- so this lady named Beth Bethany Davin at the time was married to Brad Freelander, uh-huh. right? Who then I started working at Moxie uh-huh. while I had my cafe. Wow. While I was at the Loretta Paganini School of Cooking. Oh my gosh. So at 23, so I was. I decided like I'm going to jump all the way in remove myself from this sort of like environmental space uh there was no real job for me this is kind of like remember back then it was like oh environmentalism you kooks you're nothing's gonna be here. <laughs> like, and now fast forward to today it's like mm, if i would have stayed in it where would i be i probably would be kind of exactly where i'm at right now which is a very interesting uh uh reality that i talk about but anyway so i was working at while i had my cafe and i was working at moxie um in the evening time mm-hmm. while i was waking up at four in the morning opening the cafe 
and we we shut down at two o'clock. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that was my first kind of wow. like that was what I was doing in Cleveland before we left. We actually were slated to move into the the Asian Town Center, um, which is where we were moving to. We had put some money into uh, into actually you know moving the location during that time. I went away uh, through a through a relationship that I had with with actually uh, Loretta Loretta Paganini mm-hmm. connected me with Dante Bacuzzi ah. who then connected me with, and I worked at Charlie Palmer for the summer uh, and this was the year that he moved back and took over Lock Keeper so it was just wow. all so we passed uh-huh. I was in New York he was back in Cleveland I I was you know taught underneath uh, Amar Santana who's now in California. So I keep, you know, anyway, so that, that's the kind of tree that I was in. And then I was going to come back to Cleveland and reopen Crust and Crumbs. And then we were going to call it The Crumb, which was going to be this new place. That was the time of the collapse. That was the time of the, the recession. Oh, 2008, 2009. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then I said, I'm not going to open anything. We kind of divested. And yeah. I, that was the end of my previous uh, Cleveland, you know, attempt of, me, of being an entrepreneur here. And then I wow, moved, I feel like yeah. you just described a lifetime of experience <laughs> in, and that was like two years. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that's what it was. And I moved, and then at that point is when I moved to Vermont. Well, okay. That yeah, okay. But yeah. what's a couple things. One is your homeschooling experience is interesting to me because you, you were not limited by the confines of a traditional school system. So you were able to dabble right in the interests and things that you liked. So you got a, just a glimpse of a a number of different paths that you, you could have taken. So that's thing one thing two is your, I'm curious to know what you were driven by. You had this cafe of your own, but you were working nights. I mean, was, was it all about getting experience or was that more about like, you know, making a living? Like, did, were you, you, you know, were you working to eventually put yourself through uh, culinary school or what was going on there? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, I, I, um, no, it really was experience. Cause again, I knew at this point, I never finished. So I never finished. Uh, I never finished Tri C. I never finished Case. I never finished Loretta Paganini. So mm-hmm. I'm like just like this perpetual like you know almost finished stuff guy for some reason. Like that is kind of like has been my. I, like, I think that's really in vogue now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but this was like back then. And so I've been this person who has been like okay with like hey you know I got enough. Yeah. And I'm gonna move on. Like there was no nothing was tethering me to this sort of like. You have to finish this, and that is going to be what makes you. That that's going to describe success for you. So I was trying to glean as much as I could out of any situation mm-hmm. that I could, knowing that I had a GED, right? Because yeah. because I, I that was the whole thing. Like I, not only was I homeschooled, I didn't finish the homeschooling because it was early back then. It was like kind of like ah, oh, we didn't know what we were doing. It was kind of more like unschooling, is what you really want to call it, right? If we would have had a name for it back then. And so I just was like, well, Ma, can I just kind of, can you kind of like, you know, what's it called? Like, is it like emancipate me when you, when your children? Right. Yes. Yeah. Emancipation. Yes. I think that's something like celebrity kids do. (laughs) And also Ismail. (laughs) Can you just make it okay for me to get my GED? So I got my GED before I was. 18. Okay. So you had to be able to do that. And my parents supported that decision and said, yes, I got me a GED. So all the while I'm trying to continue to be okay with that. It took me a while to be okay with even saying like, I'm sitting around with a GED, right? Yeah. Societally, I think we've come around to the fact that not only 
is traditional education and or a four-year education with a piece of paper that says you have it for everyone, it isn't always the most learned path. Some people, I mean, I feel like you've had, again, a lifetime of different experiences, which is interesting to me. Now, nobody listening right now knows the end of the story or the current part of the story as I do because I've sat with you. But all of those pieces of that puzzle probably play a role in the work that you're doing now. So let's get you to Vermont. (laughs) Yeah. How did that happen? Well, let's just say when I decided to to shut down the the efforts to open the crumb, Mm -hmm. I was looking for a job, like a chef job in Cleveland. At this point, I thought, man, come on. I had my cafe, had been written up, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, by Doug Trotner back in the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in in the, it was a free times. Sure. I think he was right. So, and all this, so I was, I was somebody who was connected enough in the yeah. in the culinary yeah. world to say, all right, well, this person has the pedigree, of course, right? Again, was was underneath the Jonathan Bennett's, right? Mm-hmm. Was mm-hmm. you know, came back from Oriole in New York mm-hmm. City, right? Mm-hmm. Was connected to this Loretta Paganini situation. I thought I'd be able to find me a head chef position in a restaurant and say, okay, I'm going to continue to learn. Okay. Didn't happen. Okay. I was looking and looking and looking and nothing came up that satisfied what I was looking for Well, here and the Cleveland. restaurant boom what didn't happen quite yet. I mean, you remember like after, I always call them the, the LeBron years yeah. when um, it seemed like there was the LeBron years and then there were a couple of big events in Cleveland, the RNC, and it's like hotels and restaurants were opening like nobody's business. And a lot of those places now are wondering where they're going to get people to work. But that's a that's a different ep- episode. So you couldn't find work here that you wanted, the kind yeah. that you wanted. So tell me, yeah, tell me how you got to Vermont. Uh, we started looking for anything on the East Coast, right? We were like, what what can we find that's on the in the Northeast? My wife did not want to move to New York. Mm. Um, I had an opportunity to go back to Oriole, and she, mm-hmm. we were like, ah, no. She was like, I'm not moving. So she's originally from Vermont. I was like, I don't know if I want to do Vermont. I had never, you know, thought that I would live and live there. And then the only places that were calling me back were places from Vermont, New Hampshire. Interesting. Uh, based off of, you know, my resume, just straight resume sure. based. They were like, oh, man, this is great. Okay. And so finally we decided on, you know, go move into Putney. Uh, tell me a little bit where where Putney is in, in the state of Vermont. It's southern. Southern Vermont is about two hours from Boston. Okay. Yeah, just north of Brattleboro. So okay. it's between like maybe two two mountains, two ski mountains, uh, uh, Mount Snow, mm-hmm. uh, and the other is over, uh, you could say Stratton, and then it's before you get to Woodstock. It's about maybe like 30 minutes from Woodstock wow. south of. Okay. Well, yeah. it sounds beautiful and pastoral and very opposite of the world, perhaps, that you grew <laughs> up in and some of the other experiences. There's 2,000 people. There's 2,000 people live, living in Putney. Wow. Right? Um, I would imagine that you were very different from a lot of people in Putney. <laughs> how do I say how do I say that no, delicately? Yeah. No, we no, we were so if you I think if you were to like Wikipedia like Putney, it might say like, oh, you know, there's like ninety, you know, ninety four, ninety five percent, you know, white population. So when my family would come visit, like the pot, you would, it would be very <laughs> obvious that, okay, Ismael's family's here. Oh, you're that, you're, you're, you're Ismael's mom, or you're Ismael's brother. Or you're <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but also not funny, you know, but yeah. that's, but it's Vermont. I mean, let's face it. Yeah, that's what it was. And then, and especially when we, when we had the restaurant right in the middle of the town, everyone knew me 
And then other people, like, you know, I'm like, I don't know, I, I can't. I'm easy to kind of like recognize because I'm like the black <laughs> dude with the sh- with the restaurant in the middle of town. So it was an unfair advantage, I'd say. I get the impression when I was talking with you the other day that um, being a part of that East Coast food scene brought you a different type of opportunity than than maybe you would have had had you started your career here because then you started rubbing elbows with all kinds of folks. You had a stint um, on Martha's Vineyard. And, you know, I don't want to gloss over those times, but I know that at some point in that process, you also looked around and got your spark for uh, social activism. Connect those dots for me, if you can. So before we opened the restaurant, the the restaurant in in Vermont is called The Gleanery. And so before... Uh, before that I was working at, you know, some really nice inns and restaurants and that kind of stuff. And then I became really close to farmers, you know, in Vermont who were, were now, I was, I was so proximate to one of the problems that they were having, which was I'm growing all this stuff. I'm schlepping it all to the farmer's market and I got to bring it all back, sling it in the compost heap. And then, you know what, feed it to my pigs. And I'm like, well, dang, what if we just have a freaking like a dinner based upon all of your like freaking waste? And they were like, okay. And then we joked around, let's call it the compostery and that kind of (laughs) stuff. And then we said, well, dang, I said, if we're going to open a restaurant, why don't we just base it off of everything that that you you are now discarding? Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't want to buy, I don't, I'm not, I'm going to stop asking you for, you know, the perfect, the the, the perfect everything. Let me get, let me get the three inch carrots with the two inch tops. Let me get this, this. I said, listen, whatever you're not selling, I will guarantee you I would buy. Yeah. When I read about the gleanery, I was very intrigued that I was just digging that whole concept and it still exists, right? The gleanery is around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's still around. I'm still a partner there, not active at all in it. You know, I still, you know, advocate for what the gleanery does and really push other people to, you know, again, a- adopt some of those, the, the principles and the concepts mm-hmm. that the gleanery still holds, which is ask the farmer what they need to sell mm-hmm. instead of, you know, what, telling the farmer what you want them to grow because we throw away, you know, $108 billion of food a year. And so that's on the macro, but on the micro, when you get to know the farmer close enough, you're so close to the problem, you can now say, hmm, actually, Lisa, that's about $5,000 of produce right. that you're throwing away. And mm-hmm. what would that $5,000 do? That would probably pay for your tractor to be repaired for next year. So now when you're, you can actually get close enough to what that waste is doing to the people within the ecosystem mm-hmm. that we're all involved, actively involved in, then it just makes it, it takes it out of the statistic and out of the data and the, the, the New York Times article and puts it into like the communities that we live in. Right. And it's interesting because um, for the longest time, I didn't really think about it in terms of, you know, vegetables and, or produce. But um, I, you know, around here, we have a couple of really great um, butchers, uh, Melissa Corey at Saucy San, um, the Yellow House uh, cheese team in Seville, and spending time with them um, and understanding one day that, oh, if I, I don't really eat chicken wings, but I mean, every now and then everybody likes a chicken wing, but like to think about a dozen wings is six birds mm-hmm. and just, I don't know, just how it all adds up or how many, how many cuts of how many loins are in a pig. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's just re- when you start to really think about those numbers, you can't, you can't get, re- you can't get that out of your brain, you, you know? Can't. And I just never really thought about it from a, a standpoint of vegetables until actually I started to know Ashley 
uh, with perfectly imperfect right. uh, produce. But uh, this is a good opportunity to mention on that topic of using uh, things that might have been destined for the composter or things uh, using the full um, life cycle of a vegetable, using all the pieces, parts that you were just in Bon Appetit. Uh, I think the article was like five ways you can use um, all the parts of a vegetable or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so you can actually find that Bon Appetit. It's actually online. I looked up this morning, bonappetit.com. You can look up Ismail Samad and you will see that story and it references the gleanery actually. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I, th no, thanks. Cause it, it, it is a nice piece. I, uh, well, you look good in it, oh. and, you know, and then it's, it is, it's really basic stuff that if we don't keep, um, hammering that message, we forget, you know, if you're not going to compost it, then you should probably figure out a way to eat it. Right. And, and I think that's, that's the key is, is the, the culture change piece. It's really like the mo most of the waste actually happens at home. And so, yes, there's this broader systemic issue that happens at the farm level or at the grocery level, but within our own homes, how much are we actually throwing away and how can we actually leverage what we habitually, you know, discard mm -hmm. and turn it into something that's of value? Yeah. Um, and so when, and one of the recipes is the olive brine chicken. Like, you know mm -hmm. what? I mean, man, that was, you know, you, you just just save your olive brine, put keep it into a jar, and then you can use that to brine your chicken or even turkey legs. Or Right. Yeah, that know, sounds good. Um, and I think there was something also with strawberries. Yeah, okay. exactly. Then, like mm -hmm. that. We Exactly. As the, the strawberries start to just look like, oh, I don't want to eat that. Honestly, you know, just cook it down with right. a little butter and rosemary and mint. Yeah, and you just cut off chops. the mold. Yeah, exactly. And it totally it, works. And, I've been doing it for a while. Exactly. Nothing's happened to me. And nothing's <laughs> happened. And, I, and, and, and to be honest, um, restaurants do it all the time Yeah, they, because the margins are really slim and mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to make it in this industry mm -hmm. if you are just like buying everything that's perfect and then taking pictures of the perfectly uh you know ripe strawberry 100%. And that, so there is this massaged reality that sometimes gets overlooked like we need to really show the sausage making a little bit mm -hmm. about what happens in the restaurant world and you mentioned the same thing around like okay the cuts of meat and that kind of stuff next time you see beef cheeks on the menu Right. Right. And it's like, wow, you know, you sold 50, you know, 50 orders of beef cheeks. Yeah. On the menu. How many cheeks How are in a cow? How many cheeks are in a cow? <laughs> <laughs> no, so. uh, I learned, um, I worked for Whole Foods Market and that was the first time I realized like how prepared foods worked, Right. It's you call the things that don't look pretty anymore. They go to the back, the, the talented chefs and people that work back there figure out, well, this will make a great orzo salad with these, you know, five things. And it just keeps repurposing and repurposing. That was the first time I'd ever realized that now there's a, there's something you just need to know when you shop that way. And it's totally okay. You walk in any grocery store now, prepared foods are it you don't want to let those sit for five days. You, those are meant to be eaten right. in a day or two because, you know, they are things that are, you know, let's call it, let's say their life cycle is kind of at the end. So the gleanery, really interesting concept. Again, I always encourage people to go and look up the things that we mentioned in these podcasts. I don't want to skip anything important or foundational to, <laughs> to your career, but there is a lot there. So um, why don't you tell me a little bit about your work, how the vineyard, uh, Martha's Vineyard played a role. And then again, when that activism piece really uh, sort of took over your mind. Again, so the gleanery itself was uh, a piece of 
of work that was a socially driven venture. Mm -hmm. And so I'd I'd say it started there. It really started to say, all right, hmm, there are these, there's a whole network of people who are under the thumb of this capitalist system that is consume, consume, waste, 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 and then not really uh, regard the people who are toiling away in the fields. So the intentionality of of the gleanery, at the time, gleaning, people didn't even know what the term was. It was provocative. People were saying, well, you mean we're going to eat waste and this and this? And I'm like, yes, you are. And guess what? It's not a big deal. If you call it, you know, wasted food versus food waste, what happens? Because again, you shouldn't be wasting food in the first place because it's actually food. It's not waste. So we had to have a whole conversation around activism around the importance of food waste and how much we're throwing away and all of that and then transition that into uh, the former president of Trader Joe's, Doug Rao, which is when we opened the grocery uh, three nonprofit grocery stores in Boston. Mm. So I saw an article that he was looking to open a, um, uh, a, a series of grocery stores in Boston. And at the time, I'm looking at my at my paychecks coming from the gleaner. I was like, oh, man, this freaking sucks. I got kids. This is not working. My wife is like, all right, this is another one of your great, great ideas. It's not really, you know, but and I'm looking at the, my situation. I said, well, hmm, I think, you know, we're at a position now to where we can really shift over into broadening what we're trying to do and what it was to your point around, like, how did it go from just, you know, a zero waste restaurant to really trying to marry uh, the realities of lack of access to nutrition in communities of color is when I met D- Doug Rao from from Daily Table mm-hmm. um, and his experience of scaling up, you know, Trader Joe's from like four stores to like what it is now mm-hmm. um, brought me into this other deeper conversation of, OK, how do we leverage our collective power? Mine was really into food systems of New England. His was OK. I understand grocery and and private labeling. And I'm like, OK, cool. Great. I'd love to be up underneath you. And he's like, well, underneath you, I mean. I'm not a food system person Hmm. and he's very, he's unapologetically capitalist and I'm unapologetically like socially driven. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think it was a really, that in and of itself became like the, the beginning of taking my kind of like creative disruption, uh, and pairing it with a very like enterprise based, Mm. uh, movement that was, which is what, uh, we did when we launched daily table in Boston. And so that whole thing was looking at, the amount of food waste and looked at the amount of people who are food insecure, right? Mm -hmm. So one in four people in in Boston are food insecure. So if you have this much food in the dollar amount that is going to waste, how can we have food insecurity? So we were looking at those conflicting realities to say, and then how do you not call it food insecurity and make sure you call it nutrition insecurity? Because there's a difference because Mm -hmm. food floods our communities and that food is actually waste in and of itself because it's crap. It causes diabetes and obesity mm-hmm. and all these other things in communities of, of you know, of color mm-hmm. and other places that, you know, are marginalized. Mm-hmm. Um, we began to, again, have to do community outreach. And I remember one story is I went to this community meeting in Dorchester, uh, which is one of the neighborhoods in Boston, and someone said, hey, so you're going to just give us all this, you know, garbage, you know, from you know, from from Whole Foods or Trader Joe's and resell it to us in our communities, right? And I said, I say, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. 
and it's going to be way more affordable than what I'm currently doing in Vermont, charging people $35 for it. <laughs> so so it, it's very difficult to, for, for us to accept the fact that we are all complicit in this mm-hmm. like very wasteful society. So how you, we have to acknowledge that we, are, we're, we all are active playing a role. So doing that sort of outreach to the to do two different communities at the same time. Yeah, that's very was interesting very to me. Very difficult. And um and it's also the other day you and I talked a lot about marketing and sort of wordsmithing and um what your clientele at the gleanery um how they perceived what they were doing versus what another um end user of that same type of food or the food in the in that part of the life cycle of that food yeah you really have to be careful how you explain that to people also just in and of itself like not making it like for lack of a, I'll just cut to the chase for for rich people making it a novelty right that's something that they do because it's cool and interesting and in vogue and and you feel good about yourself versus someone who actually really does need a box of, of food to make meals for their family. And, but, uh, but making them feel like this is, um, you know, substandard or secondhand in any way. Right. I mean, food is food, as right. you were it's, saying. And, and it's a if precious resource. If it's not resource. ruined right. and not going into a composter, it's still food. <laughs> it's still yeah. food. Mm-hmm. And it's a precious resource and the amount of food. I mean, we decorate. I mean, you go into Costco, we're decorating Costco with food and knowing that 40% of that is going to go to waste is exactly what we're doing. And then we're complicit in that sort of like hyper consumption in order to, we're complicit in that mm-hmm. in order to continue to live our lives, you know, in this very privileged reality to say, oh man, this makes us feel good to be around stacks and stacks of strawberries. But we all know that 40% of that is going to be destined to get composted out. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at that, then we wonder why food is so expensive. Because somebody has to compensate for that accepted waste, right? Mm -hmm. And usually it's us who are paying for it. For sure, for sure. I did not realize that Daily Table actually had, um, was that a partnership then with with Doug from formerly of Trader Joe's or was he an advisor? How did that work? So he was the founder and I was the culinary director. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's a nonprofit. Is that one location? No, there's three. And actually, I just talked with them last week. They are opening a fourth one and they're looking at, um, you know, uh, this as being a national model. The model itself is a, is a, is a nonprofit a uh, grocery store model. So we got funding in, to, to build out what we did as a hub and spoke model. Mm-hmm. So we had a central kitchen that was recovering food from, you know, like short coat stuff, like, you know, could be Stonyfield from the warehouse of right. Stonyfield right. had had six, you know, six weeks of, uh, of code on it that could never find its way, mm. you know, at, to Whole Foods because the code is too short. That sits in the warehouse and is, is usually dumped and thrown away. Wow. So we were looking at the secondary tertiary markets and really trying to comb through and, and design a model that we could we could be the go-to space in the northeast region to mm-hmm. recover these things that habitually are discarded yeah. in the in the supply chain. Wow. And so that's what we set up. So then we had, you know, we had volunteers and we had we worked with the Boston area gleaners that recovers about a million pounds of produce a year. Oh, that's and so that's interesting. The, and that's mm-hmm. all about that's a volunteer base. It yeah. would go out and glean, it would come to our kitchen. Uh, the students from Harvard and my TBU would come and peel all the carrots and we would turn it into smoothies or soup or whatever. And so we had this, that's what we set up. So we set the entire 
uh, infrastructure up in order to scale up. And so, as I mentioned, now they're opening their fourth one. That's all that with all the food being produced in that central kitchen. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Are you cooking and doing some other chefing work at this time? Or <laughs> I keep bringing up Martha's Vineyard because I'm always so interested because I know you did. You ran a catering company there. I did. Yeah. When was that? When did you have? T- when did you fit that in? When I left Daily Table. What, so my wife and I were like, all right, you know what? Let, you know, I had an opportunity. Someone from the vineyard, you know, just reached out to me, was like, hey, I'm looking for somebody to do some stuff. And it was really was a cold kind of outreach to me. Got it. And then I was like, ah, I kind of kicked tires and it looked like a good opportunity. And it's the highest rated catering company on the island called mm-hmm. Kitchen Porch. Mm-hmm. And so from that, like, I'm like, uh, was excited to get back into the kitchen because Daily Table was four years of like design at like deep recipe development, completely mm-hmm. different. I had never done that level of 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 startup that right. we were doing, you know, um, with the budgets that we had and everything else. At that point, we we moved to the to the vineyard. We were there for three years. Wow! And then you know, on the vineyard, you just have the you're just close to all these other cool people, um, and you're and, and you're now you're learning like this 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 very insular island reality that has tears in it too. Sure. Right? You've got like the people who are there, there for the summers. You got, mm-hmm. you know, people who own land. You've got people who there are, are year rounders, people who are temporary and this other kind of like. The workers. Yeah, the workers the wor- that come and, yeah, on and work and, you, you know. You, right. You yeah. begin to see like, wow, this is a very mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, a lot of hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Huh. Well, we're going to take a big leap in the essence of time. Okay. Because. You know, I could, oh, I think the other day I talked to you for three hours and I could have spent the whole day with you. But all of these things that you've now amassed, the skill sets that you have developed um, <laughs> with, you know, all on your own through meeting people and um, just different opportunities that you've been able to take advantage of, you then decided to come back to Cleveland and revisit your hometown, revisit East Cleveland, where your parents still live, correct? Yeah, yeah. And you bought a home, and you are now taking a number of these initiatives and connecting them to Cleveland through your organization, Loiter. Yeah, no, exactly. Did I, did I get that right? Yeah, well, par- <laughs> partially. Um, I'm, I live right next door to my parents, and it's their home that I'm living in. Okay, <laughs> noted. <laughs> that will be very important yeah. to exactly two people, yeah. Um, but no, we're, we're fortunate enough to, 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 to have a really cl- close family, and we've, we, we understand our privilege to have family assets, and that kind of like is one of the premises of Loiter, is which is trying to understand how we can as a community east cleveland being a city which is 95 percent african-american black whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. um the, you know how can we really take our our assets our talent and create you know a space of, of conviviality grounded in what a lot of people acknowledge as you know black hospitality is a beautiful thing and so really trying to change that narrative of what East Cleveland is um, and, and, again, court some of the people that I grew up with, some people who are raised in East Cleveland that are still connected there to be able to design enterprises that 
uh, represent the realities and the desires of the people who have been there toiling away Mm -hmm. amidst, you know, people driving through East Cleveland with their eyes closed as if we don't really know what's going on, you know, in East Cleveland. Mm -hmm. So, Well, some of that work has been done, I think, in the Fairfax community, Glenville, but, but not so much East Cleveland. Yeah. So there's some interesting realities of East Cleveland. East Cleveland is its own city. Right. Right. So, um, when you start to talk about, um, what opportunities are there within city hall, now you have to look at East Cleveland city hall, right. Versus Mm -hmm. Cleveland city hall that has its own separate budget and East Cleveland is operating, you know, out of fiscal emergency, right. Where, you know, it's, it does not have the resources, right? It, you know, GE, the building of Neela Neela Park just mm-hmm. sold, right? Uh, GE divested, Cleveland Clinic snatched away here on hospital and left a, you know, left a health center, right? Case Western has been on the edge of East Cleveland. They're all building, They're in, all the other building direction. in the other direction mm-hmm. instead of coming in East Cleveland. And there's financial reasons why, and I understand the financial reasons, but mm-hmm. when we make decisions that aren't you know, inclusive of sure. all of the realities, then we end up with these extractive situations and these very oppressive and exclusive uh, things that uh, affect communities of color, typically. Mm-hmm. When you look at East Cleveland, when you drive through, when you um, leave your, your home, your family home in the morning and um, go out to do your work, what do you see? That's a great question. Um, I see... Nothing but opportunity, right? So as an entrepreneur, I'm like, I'm primed to see like, hmm, all right, this space is available mm-hmm. to actually develop. This is, this this vacant land could be reimagined in, in ways that hasn't been really done before. And um, these buildings are, you know, turn of the century, you know, like beautiful Victorian you know, homes or buildings that have some of the best, you've got some of the best architecture in mm-hmm. East Cleveland. Um, and so it's like, how do we activate them in ways, you know, that, that includes the people? That's what I see. I just see so much, especially being in Boston, you know, traveling around, you see what has happened to other neighborhoods. And you could even say the same thing here in Cleveland. Um, I'm just getting back in August. I, I just see a sea of opportunity, mm-hmm. right, is how, mm-hmm. how I look at it. Well, the name of your organization, um, and it's a nonprofit, the name of your nonprofit is Loiter. Mm-hmm. We talked about the name and the significance of that name and sort of how that language is being taken back. Will you talk about that for a little bit and also talk about all the areas under the Loiter umbrella? We're going to talk mostly about food today, but I know that you're doing a number of other things. There's, there's an art element. There's a community building element. Um, wealth, wealth building. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing is when I came back, I was like, man, how do I, how do I want to come back? And the, the no brainer would be, I'm going to open up a restaurant, right? Uh, I'm still hoping that you do now after just knowing you for about a week. (laughs) Well, I, well, the, 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 you know, I will, I, I, I think the goal is to do it. Sure. It's just when Mm -hmm. and where Mm -hmm. I'm oriented towards East Cleveland because of, and you mentioned earlier in the, in this in this conversation around like the, this reality of being habitually excluded. Mm -hmm. And I would like to invite others to work with the habitually excluded people of East Cleveland to design the very realities that exist in their communities that they celebrate. Right. And so 
for me, I if I am going to open a restaurant, I've got to look at the realities of the community. The same way developers are looking at East Glen, oh, it's not ready to develop. Oh, we can't put anything there yet. Mm-hmm. But they're looking at it just strictly financial mm-hmm. and from a racially charged view. Mm-hmm. Like, I would never put anything there because they're not ready. And it does, the culture doesn't really look like what it needs to be for me mm-hmm. to usher in a Starbucks, right? So it's like, uh you don't look like the customer. So the loiter uh, piece, right. so the loiter piece cover, it, it really tries to address that sort of, you know, th- those racially charged assumptions of like, you know what, this is great for this group of people, but if if you look that way, it's really not going to, you know, play out the way that we need it to. Mm-hmm. And so the play out piece is if I walk into a space as, as a black male you know, and we, we've seen, you know, this happen, you know, even, you know, at different places and times where you're arrested for not fitting a particular uh, uh, social construct. And that's what loitering. If you're not doing anything if else. If you're not doing yeah. anything else, right? So it's like, oh, you look like you don't belong here. So therefore, lo- loitering is, is the only crime. You know, I say crime loosely. Mm-hmm. The only thing that you can um, be arrested for, for not fitting that construct. Uh, and so we want to say, well, you know what? You can't build community, which is the very thing that, which is what we want to do in East Cleveland, without creating spaces of conviviality, spaces for people to be able to roam freely, places for people to to, to hang out, to chill, yeah. to kick it, right? right? All the stuff that we we you know that we do, and you you walk up and down Coventry, you go to that uh, we all do that we all do, right? So yeah. it's like so that's what loiter is, mm. and so. The whole thing is is speaking directly to the people of East Cleveland to say, you deserve exactly what you believe you deserve. And it's the very thing that we've been saying. Why can't we have this, right? And the reason why we can't, because there has been not intentional investment to create it for us. Mm-hmm. All right, let's create this ecosystem of enterprises that are serving the needs of the community that has leakage of over $100 million because mm-hmm. there's no grocery store, there's no right. cafe, there's not even a bank that's active in East Cleveland. There's fast food spaces and and liquor stores and... Yeah. Well, what I heard you saying the other day was creating a space where people in that community can come together and have these conversations themselves makes it more likely that when um, interlopers, when outsiders come in and um, take advantage, now everyone's talking. Thing one, they're all talking together. They kind of know what's happening. They can be prepared for it. But the other thing is, is deciding for themselves, what they would like to have. What do they need in their community? Like you're not suggesting building a restaurant so that a bunch of other people from the suburbs can come in for a couple of hours and then go back out. Like you need something bigger. You need something more lasting and permanent and something that really speaks first and foremost to the people that live there. No, exactly. And then we can invite people in to celebrate it, right? Mm-hmm. So when when I, co- when, like for instance, if, if I go into a grocery store into a community that's not mine, I actually am warm and fuzzy when I go, you know, into a, a store that's owned by, you know, the, the Latin community, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, oh, okay, well, cool. All right, well, yeah. this feels good. It, I got, right. I, I'm getting this cheese. I'm getting this. I'm learning I'm something. Learning something. I'm interacting. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. so if you think about the African-American experience when it comes to, you know, having a space that's especially curated for the black experience, I can't say we can point to something in Northeast Ohio that celebrates that holistically, that people say the same way that people go to Little Italy to experience that culture. And so for me, because East Cleveland is, you know, right now is you know, 90, 95% African-American. If we were to create a space 
that celebrated black hospitality, that celebrated the wonders and curiosities of people to learn more about, you know, the community, the culinary talent, the, you know, the conversations, the music, you know, the art, all of that in mm-hmm. the space, then it's like, yes, you're more than welcome to hang out with us. But you're, you're in the same way that we you know, and some of us don't feel don't feel invited into right. Little Italy as an example, right? right? So now, if I'm walking into Little Italy, I'm like, oh, it doesn't really feel like mine. So I can't like bring my friends who are visiting me from New York City to like stroll down Little Italy and feel welcome as like five black dudes walking down. That's just the reality. It's very shocking that that is still the case, but yeah. but I I hear that enough times to know that it is the truth. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So if this sort of thing exists to where we're always, when I say we, people of color, are always having to contort and feel like we have to, you know, code switch or put into a dominant culture that doesn't really include us, then how about we flip it around? Let's make the current dominant reality that's in East Cleveland, mm-hmm. which is majority African-American. Right. Let's create spaces that celebrate the the awesomeness of all the talent that is currently there or was forced to leave because of the lack of opportunity. And mm-hmm. this is this, this is kind of what is my story was brain drain. I was not allowed to stay yeah. in Cleveland because I, as a black culinarian, could not find a way into a white dominant culinary world. And that still is the reality as we talk today around like how many... Uh, black chefs, culinarians are celebrated, you know, to the, you know, in the way that, that whites are. And that's just kind of the, the not qu- many here, not many here. And so for me, it's like, okay, we're not going to complain about it. We're going to do something about sure. it. And we're going to design spaces that are especially curated for of and by the people of East Cleveland to invite people in to celebrate that that the beauty that exists within our community that's been that's been intentionally ignored or you know mistakenly ignored. Not everybody's intentionally ignoring it, but some people are, and some people just because ah that's East Cleveland, you just don't even go in there. But there's a lot of wonderful infrastructure, a lot of untapped talent within the city to be able to put on display, and that's what Loiter's trying to do. Yeah, and you know just. Driving through recently, as I did, um, looking around, I I think outsiders, um, particularly, let's say, white outsiders, I think perceive it in a different way. It, it doesn't look the way people just seem like they just have never moved on from a certain era in imagining what's going on there. Um, and some of the, as you said, the architecture, the buildings, the old homes, the the physical spaces that exist. Um, I was learning about the history of that area from you, about the, the, the some of the buildings, many of the buildings that still exist were car dealerships because that was a place where the auto industry was booming in the, I guess that would have been the, what, late 60s, 70s? Not even, maybe before that. I'm not even yeah, sure. Yeah, no, it was before that. It was early. That was early, early. Interesting. And, yeah. So you have a parcel of land that I toured with you and... It is a about a three-acre parcel, if I recall, and you're going to activate it in a number of ways. Um, so tell me about your vision for that space. Uh, some of that, I think, is going to be coming to life later this summer, but it's a long-range project, and, and you know that, and you're, okay, you're open to that. But tell me about the, the it, at least the first phase. So, yeah, it's hard for me to even articulate because it is a lot, right? So my brain... but. And so I'm going to do my best, you okay. know, and I'm the first and I'm the first to say like, man, dude, you're doing too much. But at the same time, um, I'm waiting on people to jump in with me. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like I'm holding all of this because uh, somebody's got to hold, you know, East Cleveland, you know, 
uh, in, in ways that hasn't been held before. So not looking to be a savior at all uh, and just trying to do my part. Well, so you we know secure- that you can create things and build things. You know that they take time. You know that they take money um, and relationships. And, and you're basically utilizing, you know, your professional lifetime of relationships and you're dedicating it to your hometown. I think that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, no, that's a great way of saying it. So what we've got the three, three acres of which there's, th- there's, there's, uh, three, there's four structures on it. One is, one is a c- attached building and we're going to start this summer by having food trucks, um, have, you know, different merchants and vendors outside. And then we are going to have our podcast be there to be able to do community engagement. And then like a resource library for people from East Cleveland to know what's going on within the, the, the loiter projects and then other things within East Cleveland. And that's going to be where those, the, that's in the small structure mm-hmm. that used to be like the used car office. Um, it really does look like a used car office yeah, still yeah. to this day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that'll be happening this, this summer. And then we'll have, you know, some, some things like some benches and tables and some big Jenga blocks and stuff that, you know, that's for, for people to come and hang out and play um, and, and just chill, have, you know, some, you know, some snacks to loiter, and treats to loiter. Together. Exactly, exactly. And then in the back, um, partnering with a, a, a local artist named Donald Black, who's going to be doing a lot of the activation and created as a space for people from East Cleveland to see themselves in photography, um, to learn the arts uh, through both Donald Black and then my co-host of the Loitering and Unarmed podcast, Jamal Collins, or Jay Working. And so that's going to be the educational piece that's mm-hmm. going to be around the arts, voice, culture, that's going to be talking about like loiter as a whole as we mm-hmm. begin to introduce our our kind of food. It's like a think tank. There. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it's like. It's like a think tank of trying to talk about the realities and unapologetically. We're not, you know, we, we've got problems within our community that we have to address. And then there's other issues that are systemic, but some of the stuff that we want to take internal and to make sure that we're doing it the way that we see we need to do it gives us the autonomy and 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 again the power to to take back our communities and own the infrastructure that is delivering the goods and services that mm-hmm. have have been you know devoid for decades uh, there was a part of it i think you had talked about an um, a vision of, of an apiary, a food market, yeah. um, a, a, a farmer's market. Again, there's that great structure there that basically begs to have, you know, farmer's market type stands under it. Uh, so what kinds of things are you working on there? Yeah, so the farmer's market, we're registered right now as a farmer's market. We're working right now with Food Depot to Health, uh, one of our partner uh urban farming uh, organizations that will be managing a lot of the resident-owned mm-hmm. farms and apiaries. So one of the projects that we're doing, and next time you come through, I got to show you one of, the, a couple, one of the pilot farms, which is um, growing tea in the, in the raised beds. And actually, we're harvesting honey as well that will show up at the cafe that we're going to be opening closer up the road, which is a different location up the road, you know, towards uh, University Circle. That so, was the place I visited you, but does that have a name yet? Not yet. Okay. Um, but I think the, the interesting piece, if, if we can call it, you know, just loiter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know, it, I, yeah. it does not have a name yet, but I yeah. think we're, we're, we're playing around with a couple concepts because it does welcome people into East Cleveland. Yeah, it's right on the gateway. It's really very close to the entrance of Lakeview Cemetery, and yep. there's residences there in the um, the clinic that's, you know, it is, it is it's the gateway to East Cleveland. It's a yeah. great, and it's a great 
old building that it's so cool to see it being repurposed. Yeah, no, it should be cool. And then what we have is the, the community wealth building piece that's attached to the residents that are currently living in East Cleveland. So it's, again, Loiter is also about that economic justice piece, which is a closed loop food system that is working to uh, fight for economic justice for the people of East Cleveland. And what that means is if we can own uh, the, 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 the businesses that can create B2B opportunities for residents and or other aligned producers, then we can guarantee that the dollars stay within that circular economy of people who are working towards the same thing. And so the cafe itself will be the engine that will be mm. purchasing directly from you know, uh, the community who, who the community, re- the residents that are going to be growing, uh, you know, mint, lemongrass, mm-hmm. lavender, chamomile, uh, you know, basil, you mm-hmm. know, sage, all these different herbs that we're going to be doing our own herbal blends and tinctures and stuff to sell at the cafe. So nice. it'll be a coffee shop, tea shop. And then um, there's one piece that I can't talk about yet, but it's a, an exciting piece around, you know, just our, just really t- t- tying it directly to, um, the residents as a whole. Once we have uh, the residents that are owning the, the property within the city, and then we have a very clear channel for revenue for them, and it's managed by our partners, you know, Food Depot to Health, then all of a sudden they can continue to still work, get passive income, beautify the community, and not have to have an outside developer come in and add value to the homes. Mm -hmm. and into the community. So that's the goal. It's so holistic. Uh, I mean, it's huge. Like when you, I know when you talk about it, I think, I I feel like (laughs) I see your eyes widening and you're kind of like, oh yeah, this is a really big thing that we're doing here, but it's actually very possible. Yeah. I I think so. When you talk about the possible steps is, all right, we currently have homeowners in East Cleveland that are growing tea. We also have a cafe that's opening mm-hmm. late fall. So we also have a, a facility that can dehydrate the tea. So I can actually, right now, I can forward contract with mm-hmm. these farmers to purchase it. Mm-hmm. And because it's going to be dehydrated, the shelf life is going to be long. So we're decreasing the, the likelihood of waste. Again, we're still deploying those same sort of zero waste strategies, creating a, a closed loop food system, mm-hmm. which is going to be a lot easier to do in a three and a half mile city than the larger city of Cleveland. So I would argue that if you really want to create a circular economy, you got to start in the city of East Cleveland or these other smaller suburbs that have the ability to actually create them instead of working within a larger bureaucratic, you know, system of Cleveland that has all of these other anchors that have influence and everything mm-hmm. else. Right now, what we're trying to do is create the most powerful influence, which, which would be the people, the homeowners, the sure. residents. Um, so that's one piece of creating the circular economy. The other is, and we did purchase, uh, Loiter, the nonprofit, purchased a, um, a food company called Wake Robin Foods. Mm-hmm. And so what that does, it creates us to not only will we have a cafe that's owned and operated by the nonprofit that is working to deliver economic justice for the people of East Cleveland. The nonprofit also owns a business that has revenue and can also purchase directly from farmers within the ecosystem. And then we're going to be working to scale up that offering to, to right now, I think it's in 60 plus stores. Yeah. Wake um, Robin is something that if I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with, cause it's a brand that's been around for a while. Um, it's fermented foods. 
Right, exactly. And so that became one of the strategies of trying to create opportunities for zero waste, mm-hmm. right? Like not looking at just grow whatever you want kind of deal. Let's grow with intention when mm-hmm. you're thinking about urban farmers. And there's a lot of critiques around do urban farming programs work and that kind of stuff. I'm one of those people who critique it and ask that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of my solves for that, um, because I don't just like to critique without adding, uh, having a solution, one of my solutions and theories is, if we have control over the market opportunity, then we can make the urban farming initiatives work. Mm-hmm. But right now we have urban farmers that are deploying the exact same predictable strategy of rural farmers, which is grow it, you know, bring it out to the market. Hopefully it sells and bring it all back, you know, mm-hmm. home what they don't sell. And then that increases the cost of local food because you have to address for the shrink of stuff that you did not sell. Right. And so if I can guarantee, Lisa, that mm-hmm. I'm going to buy every single one of your cabbage heads, mm-hmm. right, what did I just do? I decreased the cost to the other consumer because I'm going to backstop anything that you didn't sell. And so in theory, if we actually are operating in a very closed loop system, Local food can be actually more affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so and that's that food, the goal. those cabbage heads are going into a product that um, has a long shelf life, and by nature of because it's fermented, and I know it, at some point you might expand from that, but um, that cabbage it already has a long shelf life, so it can stick around for a while. Mm-hmm. Then you're gonna break it down and ferment it. Then it's a canned pro- or a jarred product which actually, I think theirs is a refrigerated brand. So it's in the stores in Heinen's in with all of the, you know, Cleveland crowd and all the other um, elite higher price fermented brands. I mean, it's, that's a pretty cool thing that you did that. Yeah. Huh. This is my last big question for you. What (laughs) do you need? Um, We've talked a long time today and I, I, this is a little bit longer and I I think everybody's going to be sticking with us because I think the vision that you have and just the description of your homecoming, I think people will really relate to it. I think people will relate to many aspects of your your journey. Um, how can people help you? We have a very wonderful and generous chef community. We have a community of people that um, are interested in not only supporting new ventures. You know, we have a great makers economy here already. How can we support you? What do you need? What are you looking for? Um, And if you're listening, you should just really go to loiter.us and just, you're going to get a taste of what's happening. Uh, Every, that website isn't reflective of, of the depth of everything that's happening. Um, But Ismail, how can we help? Oh man, just tap in. Like I, I, to me, it's really understanding that, that again, we say all the time, it takes a village, right? We, you know, we don't want to, you know, I, I detest, um, you know, savior mentality. I'm not looking to be that. I'm looking to work with people in alignment to do the very thing that, that we all are, you know, wish to see, right? So it's like be the change. So for me, it's, you know, support the efforts that we're doing that with, with the, the efforts that we're doing with Wake Robin, support uh, the establishment of this cottage economy that we're trying to, to build within East Cleveland and understand the reality of what 
that could actually look like when you're talking about people who are making less than $15,000 a year, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you're talking about homes that are valued at $30,000 a year, right? So you're, to be able to create a circular economy for the habitually excluded, you know, city of East Cleveland that, you know, represents the opportunity to support, you know, social movements and it, and concentrating it in one area without it going, oh, there's this cause, there's this cause. Actually, this is a very direct investment opportunity to the people of East Cleveland, knowing that the efforts are going to create the infrastructure to build, you know, with and for the people of East Cleveland while inviting the necessary development to happen. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're not looting anyone from the reality. And if the neighborhood changes, it'd only be for the good. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. so it's really inviting us all to creating the very neighborhoods that... <laughs> That we oh the the most the, the walkability score or the the trendiest neighborhoods within you know Northeast Ohio like why can't that be yeah just make East Cleveland the most you know <laughs> the, the like why why can't it be East Cleveland and why can't it be a majority black city within Northeast Ohio that experiences these lists that we celebrate all the time so for me that's the drive and mm. if you're in it to create that very elusive reality that has been intentionally ignored mm -hmm. uh, by by investors, by philanthropists, by institutions. Sure. Well, if you don't drive through and you don't see it, it's easy to not yeah. see it. It's easy to not think about it. And that's really been, um, that's definitely been one of East Cleveland's problems. But Correct. I know you're um, talking to food tank uh, in the coming weeks. You have another national podcast and your exposure and Bon Appetit and all these things. I know it's not about you. You make it very clear that it's not about you, but your ability to um, be a voice and to share your platform is really important. I feel the momentum. I'm happy to be part of that. And um, your, your energy and your passion has really captivated me and that's what I hope. Um, I think the people that listen and find their way to the CLE Food Podcast are people that care about those things. They're dreamers. They're visionaries. They want a world that looks and feels very different than what it is. And if food can be that conduit. But as you've stated, it's it's not as simple as just popping up a farmer's market or making sure there's a, a grocery store. It's It's a mental and societal shift that you're trying to you're on that wave and you're going to, you're going to make it happen. I feel it. I hope so. Um, you and others. Yeah, I know exactly. it's not, I know yeah. it's not, I saw you like get all like, ah, yeah, yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, no, it's it, you and others and you are working with people. You have some board members that definitely know what they're doing in the development space. Uh, chef Douglas Katz is the person who told me about you and he's a, a fellow chef working with you and helping you where he can. And, and he said, Lisa, you really need to talk to this guy. He's, he's going to do some cool stuff. So, well, I'll tell you what, we're, we've hit an hour, okay. if you can believe it. So wow. what we're going to have to do <laughs> is revisit this. And I know I'll stay in touch with you and we'll make sure as you open some of these things, as some of these things develop, we'll make sure we report back and share that on our social. If you are interested in knowing more, uh, definitely follow Ismail Samad on, you have your own social channels. Um, if you want to read about some of his past work, you can find him in Bon Appetit. All, to be honest with you, all you have to do is Google him and you will find <laughs> a list of his work and different ventures that he's done. And he is a very humble person, but um, he did move his family back here. He could work anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. 
and he is choosing to come back here. And um, my goal is just going to be to get him to cook something one of these days, because I know there's some good stuff there that we all need to, uh, we all need to have. No, thanks. I, I, I appreciate it. Like, this is, um, this is great. I'm, I'm looking forward to being, you know, being like back in Cleveland and, and, and hanging out with some some folks that are, again, just trying to build, just build together. So. Just build together. Yeah. Ismail, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the CLE Foodcast. It's great to know you. Oh, thank, thank you. The CLE Foodcast is a project of Fork in the Road Productions, and my sound engineer is Bill Connors. Special thanks to Chef Douglas Katz for his support of the CLE Foodcast. Make it a point to visit chefdouglaskatz.com to see what Doug is up to, and get yourself to Zug in Cleveland Heights and Amba in Ohio City. I promise you, there's a memorable meal and a really good time waiting for you. If you like what you hear, please give me a review. This is especially helpful on Apple, where most of you are listening. Be sure to follow me on Instagram for more food adventures, too. Well, I hope you have an awesome week full of sunshine, good vibes, and delicious food. And if you're celebrating Juneteenth, my wish for you is a wonderful day full of family, friends, and great food. Remember, stay hungry, be kind, and always, always set a bigger table.